Well, here we are, and uh, back into Ecclesiastes this morning. And I know talking to some of you uh, from the message last week, you know, we were talking about joy. We we're talking about finding things in life to enjoy, right? Looking for God's hand in the ordinary things. And I know some of you have found various little things to enjoy, seeing God's hand, seeing God's presence, seeing God's life here and there. Um, and just in case things were getting a little bit too joyful, you'll be pleased to know this morning's message is on death. So we're kind of going from one extreme to the other. That's the ver- the very, seriously, the very next passage in Ecclesiastes is, is on death. You kind of go from, and that's Ecclesiastes for you, isn't it? You go from the heights to the depths, um, all in the space of, of one or two chapters. So uh, yeah, we're kind of spanning the full range of, of human emotions here, but uh, we're in Ecclesiastes, and we're in Ecclesiastes 9. Uh, we'll read the first uh, 10 verses this morning. This is uh, the quester. He speaks a lot about death through this book, but this is probably the place where, where it all uh, comes together and is at its most intense as well. So Ecclesiastes 9. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. That's a pick-me-up passage, isn't it? Great stuff. Just so edifying. I uh, came across an ad the other day. I was reading through the Herald on Sunday and uh, saw this advertisement. All good things go to heaven. You won't be able to read the the newspaper article in the middle of it, but this was actually in the ad, and it's an article about a guy called Arch West who invented Doritos, you know, Dorito chips. So he's passed away recently, and apparently uh, they cremated his body, and then before they interred it in the ground, they sprinkled Doritos over his ashes uh, and then put the whole thing in the ground. True story. Arch West. And so he was buried. He He loved Doritos so much, he was buried with his favorite snack. Um, one journalist commented on that and said, in his case, it was uh, ashes to ashes, crunch to crunch. <laughs> that was a little bit cheesy. Excuse the pun. 
That was now I thought of that one myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, actually, it made me wonder what you know. What maybe with Steve Jobs, um, it could be apples, possibly. You know, might be appropriate. I don't know. You know, it's funny the things we do sometimes for the dead, isn't it? It's fa- and you wonder whether the implication of that ad is that. By doing this, uh, you know, putting these things on the grave of somebody, putting these things on the ashes, in some subtle way, are we, are we implying that they're taking these things through with them to the afterlife? So Arch West can be sitting in heaven enjoying his, his crunchy snacks, you know. We, we, sometimes people will put car keys on a coffin or they'll put the beer bottle on the coffin or whatever it is and they're sort of, in a, in a way, subtly maybe implying that this person is taking this stuff, the stuff they enjoyed in this life, through with them into the afterlife. Is there a subtle little message in there about taking stuff with us when we go? Maybe, maybe. Uh, That's a very different view of the afterlife to the one that you meet in Ecclesiastes. Because in Ecclesiastes, really, and this is not just true in this chapter, it's true for the whole of Ecclesiastes, there's very little concept at all of any kind of afterlife. Of anything for anyone after death He really doesn't have much to say about it. As far as the quester in Ecclesiastes is concerned, death is completely final. When he talks about where people go when they die, if you look in this passage in verse 10, he says, in the realm of the dead. That's the phrase he used, in the realm of the dead where you are going. And that that phrase, realm of the dead, is a translation of one Hebrew word, the word sheol. And the best way of translating sheol is just grave. It's not a realm where there's activity and where there's consciousness. That's not what's meant by Sheol. When people use Sheol, it typically just means the grave. It means the end of life, the cessation of existence. That's why he says in Sheol, in the realm of the dead, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom because he's talking about the grave. And this is much the same right through the Old Testament. There's, a, there's very little concept of post-mortem existence. There's very little concept of an afterlife. There's very little concept that that those who know God go one place and those who don't know God go to another place. Most of the time in the Old Testament, when the afterlife is mentioned, it's just in the context of Sheol. It's just the grave. That's just where everybody goes. And so really the quester in Ecclesiastes 9 is just drawing out the logical implications of this. And and he uses, look at these word pairs that he uses in verse 2. These groups of people, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who don't, the good and the sinful, those who take oaths and those who don't take them, all these categories of people that the rest of the Bible is so keen to distinguish between, he just lumps them all together and says, everyone, the same destiny overtakes us all. They're all going to die. They're all going to the grave. No matter how good you've been, no matter how bad you've been, no matter if you offer the sacrifices or if you don't, we're all going to the same place. We all share a common destiny. It's pretty miserable stuff. But this is the way the the Old Testament tends to describe life after death. And even though we know that there's a lot more hope to come, even though we know there's a lot of hope after death to be found, particularly in the New Testament, we need to sit with this picture that the quester paints of death and the afterlife because there's a very important point to be made in the middle of it which we need to take to heart. And that is that death is an evil thing. Sometimes we get a bit too friendly with death. Sometimes I think we minimize it and we just treat it like it's this kind of gateway to new life, like it's just this doorway that people go through and it's really no big deal. The quester talks about death as an evil thing. There is an evil I have seen under the sun. The same destiny overtakes us all. 
Death is not part of God's original creation. It's not necessary. It's not just this inevitable thing. It's not just, you know, part of life. It is a complete aberration of the way in which God set up this world to function. It is not His created intent for humanity. It is not part of His original plan for this world. Death is an enemy. It is an enemy of God and it is an enemy of us. And we've got to see it as such. It stands against the plans and purposes of God. Death is really a symbol of just how much influence and power Satan still has in this world. It's originally a symbol and a representative of our alienation from God, of our separation from Him, of the fact that we are unable to to, to embrace that relationship that God has offered us because of our own brokenness and our own fallenness and our own sinfulness. Death represents all of that. It represents that brokenness of humanity and the fact that the evil one still holds a whole lot of power in this world. So we need to take that to heart. The death is an enemy. It robs us of those we love. It steals away life, and it stands against the plans and the purposes of God. But this is a classic case of how you just can't start and finish in Ecclesiastes. If we just stayed in Ecclesiastes 9, there's really no hope. Even the hope that he says we do have, that anyone who is among the living has hope, he says in verse 4, but he goes on to describe the fact the only real hope that the living have is that they know they're going to die. So it's just this ironic hope. It's this hope that eventually comes to nothing. And yet we know that in the fullness of the biblical story, there is incredible hope beyond what the quester could see and beyond what he could experience. It's a pretty black picture that he paints though, isn't it? There's another philosopher who lived not long after the quester in Ecclesiastes. His name was Plato. might have heard of him. And he said this, must not at the last all things be swallowed up in death. That was his view of death. Now, Plato obviously believed in the immortality of the soul, that the soul would live on. But there's a strong statement about the finality of death, that it swallows up life, that it nullifies life, that it cancels out life. And that's exactly the quester's view of things. That's why in Ecclesiastes, death is the great nemesis. It's the primary reason why the quester cannot find any real meaning in this life, because It's basically the way he sees it, like a big game of Monopoly. You can have all the money you like, you can have all the property you like, but at the end of the game, what happens? It all goes back in the box. That's basically how he sees life, and that's what leads him to keep on saying life is meaningless. Life is meaningless because death just stands as the big delete button right at the end. It's a bleak view. It's a pretty black view, but I think we've got to let it sit with us so that we feel the weight of what death is, that it is an enemy of God and it is an evil thing under the sun. Now, we need a bit of hope, don't we? This is a pretty bleak picture so far. So flick over to Hebrews 2, and here is where the picture starts to change. Hebrews 2. This is what Jesus has done with death. Hebrews 2 verse 9. But we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And then down to verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, 
that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I think the, the logic of this passage is this, that Jesus in his incarnation has so profoundly identified with our humanity. He has taken on the fullness of the human experience. Jesus took on the fullness of what it means to be human, shared fully, not just wrapped up in skin, but the full human nature, the fullness of who we are. And he has identified with us so profoundly that he has become our representative. And that word representative is a good word to think about in relation to Jesus because what he has done throughout his life is he is representing our life to God. In his own life, in his own thought and speech and action, as Jesus went along in his life, he is representing our life to God. He's summing up our life in his own. He's representing it back to God. And then in his death, Jesus is representing our death to God, the death that we should have died, the death we deserve to die. He's representing that death in his own death, presenting it to God on our behalf. So Jesus went to Sheol for us. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus went to hell for us. Please don't hear me saying that. Jesus didn't, I don't think Jesus did go to hell. Some people believe that between his crucifixion and his resurrection, Jesus visited hell. It's based on a, a couple of scriptures in the New Testament that tend to be interpreted poorly, I think. There's, there was no necessity for Jesus to visit hell, to go to hell. What he did for us is he went to the grave. He went to Sheol. He was buried in a Palestinian tomb. That's what he did for us. And that death was not just for himself, it was on our behalf because he was representing our death to God. And then on that Sunday morning, Jesus rises from the dead and he represents our life back to God. He represents our new life. He's still our representative all the way through. He rises from the dead and represents us in a new form. So now we are drawn in, those of us who are followers of Jesus, drawn into his life drawn into be participants in his death, drawn into be participants in his resurrection. So we share in the dying of Christ and we share in this newly resurrected life that starts to give us hope both for this life and the life to come. And that's why when you get to the New Testament and you get to the Gospels in particular, you start to see a new vision of life after death. Not just one place now, not just Sheol, the one destination for everyone, but now two separate realms or some people believe it's Sheol divided into two. However you want to conceptualize it, it's two realms now. On the one hand, there's Hades, not hell, that comes later, but Hades. And on the other hand, there's paradise or heaven. Hades is the realm that people go to after death who have not embraced God's offer of life and relationship through Jesus. And really, I think the best way to think about this is that those people who have resisted God's offer of love and life and relationship in their life on earth, get to the end of their life, and in the words of C.S. Lewis, God turns to them and says, your will be done. That nobody really can, uh, God doesn't really consign people to Hades as much as we consign ourselves there by our rejection of him in this life. And so Hades is the realm that represents separation from God, that represents alienation from God, that represents a withdrawal of the love and the life and the presence of God. That's the afterlife reality for people that have pushed God away and held Him at arm's length during this life. And then the good news on the other side of that is there is this realm called paradise or heaven, same place, 
which is the destination of those who have embraced God's offer. Not those who are better than everyone else, not those who have lived better lives, because heaven knows we haven't, but those who have simply embraced the incredible free offer of life and grace that Jesus holds out to us. This afterlife reality becomes heaven or paradise. And I prefer to use the word paradise. Remember, that's the word Jesus used to the thief on the cross. When he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, he wasn't kidding about that. Today, the reality was, when that thief died, he immediately went to this realm called paradise. The word heaven in the Bible, in the New Testament, tends to be used more for the ways that heaven is coming to earth. It more has that direction to it of from heaven to earth, the way God is interacting with earth. Heaven is not typically used to describe us going to that realm when we die. So I prefer to stick with the word paradise. But either way, it's the same place. It's the direct presence of God. And when you die, there's no gap. There's no time delay. Paul says, if I'm absent from the body, I'm present with the Lord. Right there. Those people you know who have passed away, who know Jesus, it was immediate, it was instantaneous. One minute they they were breathing in this life. The next minute they woke up in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus and heard him say, well done. That's the reality of paradise. It's that direct and intimate communion with Jesus right there, Father, Son, and Spirit in his presence, enjoying relationship with him as we were created to enjoy it. But here's the thing with heaven. Heaven is important, but it's not the end of the story. Paradise or heaven is a place of incredible uh, relationship with God, but it's also a place of incredible anticipation for what's coming next. I don't know whether you've thought about that for people that you know who are in heaven right now, but they are existing in a state of anticipation. They're loving it. They're happier than they've ever been. But they are anticipating a greater day to come because heaven is not our final goal. The biblical story does not end with us all being zapped off to this faraway, otherworldly, spiritual realm of heaven. The end of the biblical story is heaven coming to earth. And this is triggered by that great day when Jesus is going to return. He's going to appear bodily on this earth. And there'll be this great judgment of everyone who's ever lived, past, present, those who were in Hades, those who are in heaven, as well as those who are living at the time Jesus returns. There's going to be a great judgment. When we're all resurrected, everyone's going to be resurrected, not just those who are in heaven, everybody resurrected to stand before the judgment seat of God and give account for our lives. Now, if you've already died, you're going to have a pretty good indication of how the judgment will go because you're going to find yourself in Hades or in heaven, right? And I don't think the Bible leaves open any opportunity to switch between those realms after you've died. So if you find yourself in Hades after you've died, that's a sign the judgment's not going to go particularly well for you. If you find yourself in heaven, then the judgment is something to look forward to. And this is how it's pictured. You know, we think judgment... And we often have such a negative connotation. In the Scriptures, judgment, God's final judgment, is pictured as this glorious day that we have to look forward to. Creation longs for the judgment of God because judgment is the precursor to new creation. Now, we'll get to that in a minute. But we have this judgment where we are all standing before God. 
And ultimately, the criteria of that judgment is whether we're united to Jesus. That's really the simplest way that we can just, not how good you've been or how bad you've been or, or, or whatever, or how many times you've been to church, how much you've given, anything like that. It is just simply what we've done with Jesus and whether we have embraced that offer of his saving love. That's the ultimate criteria of the judgment. The way Revelation pictures it is the Lamb's book of life, whether your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that whether you share in the death and the resurrection of Jesus and whether you've taken on his dying and his rising in your own life. That's what the judgment's really about. And then on the other side of that judgment, we see the establishment of these two final realities. And on the one hand, there's hell. And hell represents that continuation of what Hades was before, that permanent separation from God. Some people believe that it's, it's a place of ongoing torment. Others believe that it's, it's just destruction. It's often how it's pictured in Revelation, just with language around destruction, that people are just simply destroyed, that their existence ends. I won't go into the arguments for those, but what we know about hell is that it represents final separation from God. It represents permanent exclusion from His new creation. It represents that final alienation from Him. And that's the harsh reality. It's not fun to talk about. It's not a fun topic of conversation, but this is the biblical reality, that there is this realm of hell, and it does represent the ultimate withdrawal of the life and the love and the presence of God. But the great news is that on the other side of judgment, for those who know Jesus, for those who are united to Him in His death and His resurrection, the final biblical vision is of this incredible new creation. Again, not us being zapped out of this world to heaven. But as you read Revelation 21, 22, the vision is of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, coming to earth and God's dwelling place now among people. And the voice from the throne saying, behold, I make all things new. Not I make all new things, but I make all things new. The new creation is about renewal. It is about this good world that God once called good being brought to its final destiny, its final destination of perfection and renewal. The, the destination that you have to look forward to if you're a follower of Jesus is not that you're going to be rescued away from the world, but that you're going to be rescued along with the, the, the physical world. It's not that you're going to be saved from the world, it's that you're going to be saved along with the world. The hope that we have as Christians is not just that we will individually be resurrected to new life, but that the entire creation will be resurrected with us. As Paul describes it in Romans 8, creation will be set free from its bondage to decay, set free to enjoy the liberation of the freedom and the glory of the children of God. That's what creation itself is groaning for just as we are groaning for it here in these mortal bodies. The final destination for you and I as followers of Jesus is nothing less than the glorification of creation. Not just you and I glorified, the entire cosmos renewed and glorified in the presence of God. And the word that the Scriptures use most often to describe this is simply shalom that there will be peace. 
peace on earth. And I know that's such a cliche, but finally one day it will be a reality. And our relationships with God and with one another and with the physical world will be perfected and will be as they were always intended to be. You know, the great reality of that life, that new creation, is that death itself on that day is going to be destroyed. That's what we have to look forward to. See, our our hope as Christians is not just for life after death. If that's all we have to look forward to, when you think about it, death death itself still remains. If the only hope we have is for life after death, then death is still a present reality. It's just that we get to experience something on the other side of it. But Jesus came to do more than that. Through his death and through his resurrection, he came to completely defeat death. Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. It is his jurisdiction. And one day what he will do is defeat death completely so that death itself will die. What we have to look forward to is not just life after death, but the complete and final eradication of death itself. So in the new creation, there will be no more death. That's what Hebrews means when it talks about Jesus tasting death for everyone. Because we've still got to die in this present life unless Jesus returns before we do. But the hope we have is that in the new creation, death is just not a part of the deal at all. There is no more death. There is no more mourning. There is no more crying. There is no more pain. Because the old order of things has passed away. Death itself will die. Paul puts this so beautifully in 1 Corinthians 54. And I can't help thinking that when Paul wrote these words, he must, have been, he must have had that quote of Plato's in his mind. You know, when Plato said, must not at the last all things be swallowed up in death? And here's Paul in 1 Corinthians 54. Listen to this. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Take that, Plato. That's what he's saying. That's the answer to Plato. That's the answer to the quester. That's the answer to the finality of death, that death itself will be swallowed up in victory. And he goes on, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. One day death itself will die. Now, where does that leave us in the present? If we come back to Ecclesiastes 9 and this bleak picture of of death, Because we still live with the reality of death all around us. We live in its shadow, as it were. And I think there's a couple of things to take to heart from all this. One is that we do need to treat death seriously as our enemy. I think sometimes Christians do tend to trivialize it. We tend to downplay it. Because we've got such incredible hope on the other side of death, sometimes we can almost treat it like it's a friend. It's not. It's our enemy. It causes incredible pain. And think of Jesus in John 11 when he came to the tomb of Lazarus. Even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, minutes later, what's the first thing he did when he got to the tomb? He wept. Seems bizarre. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. He knew this miracle he was about to perform. But Jesus let himself feel the weight of death. He let himself feel in that moment the groaning of all creation, crying out for its liberation. Jesus wept. And I think if he wept, so can we, right? We need to allow ourselves to feel its heaviness, to grieve deeply. 
and to treat death not as a friend but as an enemy. It's what Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 15, the final enemy of God to be destroyed is death. On the other hand, of course, in the face of death, as followers of Jesus, we need to hold on to such incredible hope. And it's not just hope for what's going to happen after death. Because in the incredible wisdom and sovereignty of God, He's allowed us to start bringing about glimpses of that hope even now, even in the present. When Jesus rose from the dead, that was the first blossom of spring that tells us summer is on the way. And ever since then, whenever the power of Christ is made known, wherever the power of the Spirit goes forth, wherever faith and hope and love are demonstrated genuinely and sincerely, there is resurrection and there is hope and there is death being dealt one more blow. Every time you pray for another person, every time you encourage someone, every time you talk to someone about Jesus, every time you worship God genuinely and sincerely, every time you express faith and hope and love, a little piece of new creation is coming about. And that's not just going to be destroyed at the end of this age. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, some of what we do in this life will survive the flames of judgment. Some of it won't. Some of it will be blown away, but some of it will survive on and become part of God's new creation. As Tom Wright says, we're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to fall off a cliff. We're not watering a rose garden that's about to be trampled over by a lawnmower. We are doing those things and participating in a kingdom that is one day going to be fully established. And that, friends, gives incredible meaning to the things that we do in this life that are expressions of faith and hope and love done in the power and the Spirit of God. Because they will, in a way, I don't understand, but somehow they will become a part of God's new creation. They'll be drawn up and swept up into that new world. And they'll be represented there. There's going to be this continuity that's drawn right through. That speaks meaning into our lives in the present, doesn't it? That speaks hope. That speaks incredible power into the way we live with hope and with resurrection life even today. Let me finish this morning with a poem. I'm not given to poems, but this is such a goodie and talks about death and the reality of where it's all heading from the British poet and priest John Donne. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go. Rest of their bones and souls delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppies or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. That's our Christian hope. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope we have in Jesus.
Father, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you that you have triumphed over the grave, that death couldn't hold you down, but you have risen and you hold the keys to death and Hades. We thank you that we're no longer under Satan's jurisdiction or in the realm of death, but as we're united to you, we share in your resurrection hope, and that gives us so much hope in the face of death. Jesus, we ask that you would help us to be people of great hope in the present. Even as we feel the weight of death in our lives, as we see others taken from us. God, we feel the pain and the weight of it, and yet we also feel the incredible hope of your resurrection. Help us to live with that hope boldly and confidently and hopefully in the face of death, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.